So we open this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you go ahead and grab your Bibles and do that, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we continue our series and our guide to church trouble. The Corinthian church was in trouble uh, and they were doing a lot of good stuff. They had a lot of good things going on, but they also had some trouble stirring. Uh, and so Paul writes this letter to help guide them through that in a way uh, that brings unity and fruit. Um, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to check out the back of your bulletin. You see a little guide there just that we'll be moving through. Let's go ahead and read these 13 verses in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. You follow with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not it is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as far as prophecies, they will come to an end. As far as tongues... They will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Here we see in this context the necessity of prioritizing love. In the context that we have here, in this famous love chapter that many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with, in this context... We have it in the context of us being called to use the variety of gifts that God has given his church and to use those gifts for the common good. Each of us, we've been going through here and we've heard each of us, each one of us, not just the hired people in the church, but each believer in the church has a responsibility to use the role that God has equipped you with, to use the gift that God has equipped you with. And in, in the use of that role, we're not to envy or pity ourselves because we wish to be exercising a different gift, right? We're not to be arrogant and think of our gift as more spiritual or more honorable, honorable or more respectable or more needed. We look at our role and our gift given to accomplish that role, as we did in chapter 12. It was presented to us in the context of the human body, where every individual member is needed for the body to function properly, right? And this isn't just theory, right? But we are to actually function and treat each other in this way. It's what we would call street-level doctrine. 
I need the body, right? We went through that. Every part. And I don't get that. We don't get that. Or we do things that undermine that. And the body becomes deformed and grotesque. That's what was outlined here for us, right? On the other hand, right? Here's the excitement. Here's the good stuff, right? On the other hand, we embrace these truths. And the body, the body of Christ, takes its graceful, coordinated shape, okay? Which enables it to function in service to God's purpose. And that's what we're going after, amen? In the middle of this guide here, in chapters 12, 13, 14, in the middle of this guide on gifts and the church being instructed on how to avoid disunity and function in harmony, we're given the necessary key that makes this possible. What is that key? Love. Love, right? Love is the way of life together in the church. That's what this is saying. It's not another gift that some are endowed with and some are not, right? It is the most excellent way of life. And that's what we see there if you look at chapter 12, there at verse 31, right? And I will show you, Paul says, an even better way. See, it is the most excellent way of life that ought to characterize every believer. So many of you, and raise your hand, in fact, if you have had this red in your wedding, right? If you had this red, this 1 Corinthians 13, or you've been to a wedding where it has been red. Anybody? Okay. Everybody has their hand up. Okay. Or at least a lot of people do. You see, it's one of the most popular passages in the scripture. When we think of the chapter in its context, it's actually interesting that it is used at weddings, given that it is a stern rebuke. And I think we'll see that as we press in. I think as we slow down and feed, we'll see the intensity. See, while when we read the end of 31 there, that I will show you an even better way, or then we pick up again in chapter 14 there in verse 1, it says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Right? When we read that, it doesn't really sound like much of a rebuke, but when we think of how the church was acting towards one another, we see how directly and sternly Paul was addressing them and calling them to examine their work and the use of their gifts in light of this most excellent way. He's saying, y'all need to stop right, and, and, and examine what's going on around you and within your body and within your service and all that, that good stuff and that fruit that you can point to that's going on and you've got all these ministries going on in Corinth, all these things that you can point to and, and say why you're thriving and say why you're spiritual. He goes, but man, it's, it's not going well actually. I'm going to bring a word of, of critique and rebuke against that. That's what Paul's doing. He says, because you don't have love. You're missing it. The most excellent way, the way of love is to be a, a distinguishing characteristic in every gift. Love is to be transcendent quality that validates the usefulness of any gift in the individual Christian. Right? As we use our gifts, as I use my gifts in the body, right? Gifts, uh, the different gifts that we have, we, we must prioritize love, not the gift. Right? So our first point this morning, taken, one, taken from verses 1 through 3 there, uh, is without love, I am nothing. Just sit with that. Say, yeah, ouch. Without love, I am nothing. Right? And, and you see it there in, 
in the first verse, if I speak a human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. My words, I'm just meditating on thinking, man, our words, our gifts, right, with love, like love allows them to have the sound they're supposed to have, right? Love allows our gifts, right? It brings the, the right tune to, to our message, right? It shapes us. It shapes the tune that God wants us to have. It provides the structure for our words, our gifts to hang on to. Love brings value, right? Doing the extraordinary. And here's some of the thrusts there as we get into verse 2. Doing the extraordinary doesn't bring value necessarily. See, see what it says. If I have the gifts of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... If I can move mountains, if I have faith that can move mountains, like that's extraordinary. I mean, those are like he's just grabbing hold of some like very extraordinary gifts and saying that in God's kingdom, if you are, are, are able to do extraordinary things, do you realize that you, even in doing those extraordinary things, do you realize that you can be a big nothing burger in the church? That's what he's saying. Verse 2 and 3, if I speak prophetically, have all wisdom and knowledge, all faith to do miracles, but have not love, I am nothing. This does not fit with our self-esteem initiative. Right? You can have accomplishments that elicit people to marvel. That's what he's saying. Right? You have accomplishments that elicit, that cause people to go, wow. Yet in the church, from God's eye, you amount to nothing if you don't have love. The way of love gives value to whatever gift you have. If you have a person in the church who has so much gifting to offer, so much in the ability of teaching, so much wisdom, that could be huge for the church, couldn't it? Like, oh, and, and, and you see even the church temptation to like b build just around that and, and how, but yet love could be missing. I mean, you need these things, these, these types of gifts, like we need them, right? And, and Paul's saying, yeah, yeah, we, we, we do, and, and he, we've emphasized that, but, but man, uh, not without love, <laughs> Right, right. Take that person that has some, some extraordinary gifts and then take the, the areas of gifting that we consider less honorable, service. Service yesterday at the men's conference. In the spirit, those serving in the spirit with love in the kitchen at the men's conference. Like take that gift and compare that gift with the awesome gift of someone, you know, some extraordinary gift, okay? Teaching, prophesying a word, speaking a word of wisdom, of knowledge. Take that gift and compare that with the person serving unknown at the men's conference, never seen, right? You see, if you have love, you're something. If you are the one with wisdom and knowledge and you're that speaker, going on, 
and, and, and exercising your gift in the church, but you don't have love, you're nothing. You see, you see what, what matters is here the love. You, you add nothing. What this is saying here in this text, you add nothing to what God is trying to accomplish. You're just a noisy mouthpiece. And it's important, see, for the church to recognize that as well. It's important for us to stop here and, and, and really grab hold, I think, because I think it's, it's, it's pretty harsh, actually, what it's saying by our standards. Right? Like, this warning here is pretty harsh. It, it's intense. It's, it's, it's shocking, at least. He is not just saying your gift is nothing. He is saying that if you don't have love. But he's also saying, he's addressing both the gift, which is valueless, and the person. He's addressing us. I am nothing if I don't have love. And I think, I just think about that, man. How self-deceived I could be. Because of exercising some help, some service, some gift in the church. Right? A person could come, prepare a sermon, deliver it. It'd be great. They could wax eloquent about the beauty and majesty of God with much wisdom and knowledge. And people can stand in awe as they listen and talk about the depths of the doctrine of God. They can have all that. But we could be so easily deceived. Right? We can be easily deceived to think that person is something. But this is saying, man, it's not if you don't have love. Using your gift. I use my gift in the church. We use our gifts in the church without love. And here is God's value judgment on us. You're nothing. We have to sit with that. Our function and our gifts, no matter how spectacular they are without love, it sets our value at zero. Love goes on there, verse 3, love brings substance to sacrifice, right? Still on this nothing, right? It says there, verse 3, if you give away all your possessions, if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. This idea of nothing still there. And you think about, man, think this, the, the sacrifice in that. That's intense sacrifice. That was, that's like... I know some of us just made some sacrifices just now in the offering like we gave, right? And there's other ways. Some of you gave yesterday in your service, and, and right? And so he, but there, this is going like extra step. If you give away, he's saying, even if you gave away everything, like, wow, that's a lot. Anybody given away? You don't have to raise your hand if you've ever done that. But, but I know I've never given away. I've never even come close to that kind of sacrifice. I mean, maybe when I could fit everything I owned in my uh, 85 hat Accord hatchback or 87, whatever it was, you know, because I was closer, you know, in the sense I didn't have much. So if I gave a few pennies here, you know, it's like, well, it's closer than I've ever been. Uh, it's sad, but, but, but seriously, we haven't come close. Give all possession? That's a serious sacrifice. And he goes a step further. Martyrdom? You mean martyrdom? You give your body? Give your life? To sacrifice, even at that level, he's saying, without love, you gain nothing. It's a waste. It's a waste. Church, it's a waste without love. And it's like, whoa. 
doing these things, man, it can make us feel so very good, can it? It can make us feel so very right and spiritual. But if we do these things, as great as they can be without love, they point to nothing spiritual about us. In the words of D.A. Carson, he says, you remain. If you do these things without love, you remain spiritually bankrupt, a spiritual nothing. If love does not characterize your exercise of whatever grace gift God has assigned to you. And the second point, moving on. So we have there that uh, without love, we're nothing. Our gifts are nothing. Second point, love is verifiable. So this is good news. So we can know, we can walk out of here today and we can know whether we have love or not. Thank you. Right? It's very clear. Like we can know, we can see it. It's verifiable. It's measurable. Sometimes thank you. (laughs) Right? I might give an illustration of why sometimes thank you for that. Because, you know, you can kind of like, it's nice to maybe think you're a loving person. But God says, well, okay, you really think that about yourself. You really think that about your church. Well, there's some things you, we can actually measure it. It's like, oh, well, I, can, we, can we just stay away from that? But here we can know. We can know. I can know when I'm nothing. And my gifts are nothing. I can know whether or not myself or the person next to me is following this most excellent way. We can look at our behaviors and see whether we have love or not. Because love has been described to us here in very practical, street-level terms. We see it there, 4 verses 4 through 7, right? It, it defines it for us. It, it, it may be better to say it describes it for us. From this description, uh, the love of God uh, protects from allowing love to be this uh, abstract concept. You see, he, this, this passage right here protected the church and protects our church, protects us and our individual relationships from, from allowing love, uh, from, from allowing us to, to just sort of willy-nilly just say to one another, I love you while living like we hate each other. It, it protects us from that hypocrisy, praise God. Right? Because love here is something that is functionally and practically put on display. So we are prevented from confessing a love for, number, for, for one another that is simply an idea. Right? It's something when you say, right, we're prevented from, from confessing a love for one another that is something like, man, I, I just trust you because you said that you love me and it's... You know, and, and just kind of moving down this road of, of having to accept it because somebody just confessed it, but it's saying, well, wait, or, or even just like lying to ourselves because it's here we have some metrics that we can throw at it, that confession of I love you. There's some metrics here that we can throw and verify whether that confession is true. Now we know, right, here, us in the church, because we know we're going to say it's true, right? Because I know I'm supposed to say I love you, right? We're supposed to value love, aren't we? So we're going to say that. After all, we, we know that's the greatest command. Jesus tells us. He's very clear about it. But when we say it's true, is there's more that we can do, right, to hold each other accountable and help one another answer yes, because it's right here for us, because it's described very plainly 
here. In fact, we ought not to allow one another to go on claiming love for one another if it's not displayed in the behavior. For the love of God that is holding us to account to to each other, to one another, can be described and verified. And there's nothing about this description that allows our love to be this loosely defined sentimentalism that we see all over. Right? It doesn't allow it. Praise God. Yeah, because then we get, to re- we get to pursue and run after and help each other grab hold of real love. Right? And... So the love of God that we are able to reflect because he so outlined it here and then by the power of the Spirit, he'll enable us to practice this kind of love. It's, it's much grander and much more concrete and much more practical than sentimental love that I would say uh, leaves you stranded in the street. <laughs> Doesn't help guide you at the street level. Right? The most excellent way does, which is love. Right, can be seen. What this is saying is that love can be seen in us, y'all. That that right there just ought to hold us accountable to it, right? Now I have to like really sit with this more. Because what he's saying is love can be seen. I just can't say it, and you just sort of gotta trust me on it. It's gotta be seen. It's not hidden somewhere in the recesses of my heart, but it's put on display in my behavior. And this, this entire list contains behavioral things that we can point to and say, you're loving or you're not loving. You can self-examine. Each of us can, can leave here this morning self-examining this question of, am I being loving? It makes it difficult to get away with not loving. Love expresses itself behaviorally. It's, it's verifiable. We see verse 4 there, love is patient. And I was thinking about love is patient, love is kind. I just grabbed those two and I think, man, love is patient, love is kind. I'm thinking of the human body and the illustration uh, there. And I'm thinking, man, if, if my foot is, is struggling or sprained or asleep, and if the rest of my body is patient and kind to my foot, right, and we just hold off before we stand up, right, then because I love the foot, right, then what happens if I hold off till it kind of wakes up or I do some things to, to get my foot that's sprained or to heal it or to, to, uh, to let it come, stop being asleep? You know what I'm talking about? If I wait, and then, I, then I stand, I can start walking, and I walk like I'm coordinated, right? If I'm patient with the foot. I'm impatient, and uh, I'm unkind, to the parts of my body, and boy, that can become real clumsy in the way that I move. I hope you connect and see where I'm going. That's why I'm saying love, just in those two, I'm taking those two, patient, kind, love enables our coordination. Love is an antidote to insecurity. We see that even next as we look at the next things it says about not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant. Right, because when I'm insecure, Right, so love is an antidote to insecurity because when I'm insecure about my role in the church and my gifting, what do I do? I envy other roles because I fear my value is at stake. Right? I self-pity. Right? I become sad or angry as we talked about those things or I boast when I'm insecure Because why? See, it's connected to love. I boast when I'm insecure. Why? Because I'm jockeying for my place. I'm more concerned about how you think of me and my ministry 
I'm not concerned about you. Love would be concerned about you and your ministry and how the Lord is using you. Right? But when I don't have love, I boast and I elevate I, not other. The boaster is more concerned with being loved than he is with loving others. I'm arrogant when I'm insecure because I want to prove, right? Right? When we're insecure, we're arrogant, actually. Think of it. Think of your own arrogance. Right? Because we want to prove our importance. I want to prove my intelligence. I want to prove that I'm the harder worker. I served more. I did. Right? Or, right? When we don't have love, what else do we do? We're not very teachable. Or we shout other people down. We always have a criticism. Think of boast there. Love isn't boast. It is not boastful. You see, loving others and their gifts quiets praise of self. Hear that? Loving others and their gifts quiets praise of self. Because you desire to promote the praise of others. It kills envy because it desires to support the value of others. Love kills arrogance because it believes others are more valuable. Like it really believes that. And so love kills it. Love makes you feel confident about coming in low because your agenda in your life isn't you, it's another. Love prevents me from prioritizing my preferences. So I'm thinking now in verse 5. Right? It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. does not keep a record of wrongs. So I'm thinking of just the rude, self-seeking, my, seeking my own interest and irritability. Love prevents me from prioritizing my preferences. You see, those times, think of those times that you're rude, right? What are we doing? We're thinking about us, right? And, and whatever it is, we're thinking about us, we're thinking about our responsibilities, and so I cut someone off, right? which, which is rude, we all agree that would be rude, okay, we could list a bunch of examples of what rude is, right? I cut someone off, and I'm not even talking about driving, but just even in listening to them, you know, I cut them off because I'm not really listening, so I'm rude, I'm not really thinking about them and the words coming out of their mouth. And, and it's not just, I can't just say, so we're so good at, like, like our psychologized culture just giving us excuse after excuse after excuse, right? To be like, well, I'm just not a good listener. That's not one of my character traits. Yeah, well, hmm. It's supposed to be love is, love helps you become a good listener. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, a dude. And so, like, oh, that's not an excuse. All right, rude. Right, when I have love, but it expels this. These rude things get pushed out when I love. Love enables me to consider others, which helps me, helps prevent me from being rude, Right? And on the other side of that, it helps uh, keep us from being 
irritable when others are rude. Okay? So, that's important. Uh, what irritates us the most, I, or I, I think it, how this maybe plays out, is, is that uh, when people don't prioritize things the same way we do, or the same things that we do, uh, and, and you can think of superficial things, right, in your life. And I thought about giving some things, but then I deleted it. Because I don't want you to feel insecure. <laughs> when, you know. and, and it's like, you know, but it could be petty things, you know. And, and, just, and things that maybe aren't as petty, you know. Like that we see each other do. We're saying, well, that seems rude or that irritates me that that person. Okay, I'll list one. Uh, so now apparently... Uh, you can bring animals into any restaurant and that sort of thing. And you're like, what? It's okay. This is good that we're, we're growing as a society. But okay, so that's a, that can be something I'm like, really? You have, it's not, and I'm not talking about like dogs, that, that, that animals that help people. I'm not talking about that sort of thing. Just people just rolling up into restaurants with their animals. And, uh, and so that's, so I'm not talking about the special dogs that, that would help people and that sort of thing. But and service dogs, right? I'm not talking about service dogs. Uh, and, but it, and so now it's just the thing. You can do that. So, okay. So maybe I shouldn't have mentioned that one, all right? Because now it's going to be hard for you to love me. Uh, but, but I'll say that's something that, you know, as it happens, I'm just going to, i like, all right. Like there's, I feel like that's maybe not, I feel like that could be rude just because there's other people there. They're eating and some people might not like that. And so I'm thinking that maybe that's rude for you to do that. Um, but... I, what do I do with that, right? It can become an irritation in me, and I can let that sour my whole experience there in that restaurant or whatever, right? But I think in love, it helps me set that aside. And we go on with examples like this. Uh, if we think about even substantial things, like what irritates us could actually be a sin, meaning, meaning we could be ir irritated by somebody that is sinning against us, and it irritates us, but love enables me to approach that even. In fact, love guides whether I need to approach it. We think about it, it is the man's virtue to overlook an offense, so love helps provide a guide, guidance for me here, helps me know when, how to overlook an offense. It, it, it guides me on how I approach whatever the issue is, Right? Love guides that approach. Because I'm not, uh, I'm, and what does love say to me? What does love, how does love provide the guidance in those situations? Right, well, because when I, I I'm not, if, if love doesn't ir irritate me, right, then um, I, I won't just confront you if because of some itchy irritation <laughs> or annoyance, right? But, if I really felt like I needed to talk to you about it, it would be from a position of concern. See how it switches completely. As opposed from a position, you're, you're bothering me. Right? See the attitudes shift completely. I hope that helps. Lots we could say here. But this is important to understand. We look at love stirs me to forgive. We look at this record of wrongs. 
It does not keep a record of wrongs. You see, in working with Christians, guess what? You're going to wrong each other. Okay, so as we work together in God's kingdom, we're going to wrong each other. Sometimes we're not going to know it. Sometimes we're not going to acknowledge it like we should because we're still being self-seeking. And so do you know that, right? Do you know that you are part of a body right here at Southern Hills that is going to sin against you? You're part of a body. If you're a member of Southern Hills, you're part of a body. You've made covenant with a body with individual members sitting next to you, sitting in front of you, sitting behind you, that they, hear this, I'm telling you right now, they are going to sin against you because they're being self-seeking. That's going to happen. You know, it shouldn't happen. I'm saying it's going to happen, right? And where we're going here now is our love for another stirs us in those moments to forgive, Right? To be quick to forgive and to have an attitude of forgiveness, of letting go of a wrong, not holding it to someone's account, not not adding it to their record. Love stirs me to cut loose of a bad record. Now say, I've talked with people who keep journals of sins others have done against them. Now I think Most people don't do that, right? But in our hearts, right? In our hearts, we keep that record. And love says, love helps us not do that. I'm just thinking about all these things. So we just went through this list. And so a lot of the points that I listed in terms of like just just meditating on these things I'll just say it this way. Have you ever been preparing to preach this passage, wrestling hard with the description of what love is, and then you go home, and that evening, you get into a very frustrating, tense argument with your wife that makes its way into the next day? Has that ever happened? Anybody in here? Well, I came across this guy uh, this week, and this very thing happened to him. Okay? And so, and, and I'm going to use first person just so it helps. <laughs> but I'm laying on my bed, and, and I'm really, I seriously, I just had to go lay down. And, and literally, like, I was just, like, meditating on this passage, writing on this passage, trying to grab hold of seven through... Four through seven here. And, and I'm laying on my bed and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to examine my role in this because I'm, I'm, tra- I'm right. I'm tracking right here. All right. This isn't my fault. And so I, I'm, and I start, I just, love is patient. Now I have, okay, so love is patient. I've, I have been patient many times. Okay, all right, So, but I'm not right now, all right. Okay, so the next one, maybe, how am I going to score here? Like if I could just get, you know, a few out of, a few, a few of them right. So love is kind, and you just keep going through it. 
And I'm thinking, well, you know, and literally, I mean, I'm honestly trying to talk myself in like, how have I been, I have been kind. And I'm, and I'm thinking about that. Laying in my bed. And love does not envy. Well, I know that I haven't, I haven't envied here. Like, that's not what's going on. So at least I got, wait a second. <laughs> that actually might be the whole reason I'm in this. Is because of my envy. Okay, it's not boastful. Well, I don't think, well, actually, I did. I did. And I'm, this is the thought. I did. I, I actually paraded my righteousness out in front of her in order to convince her and win the argument. Well, I don't do this or that. And so I guess I was actually boastful. And I was trying to go through each one of these in the back of my head, and I was hoping to be able to come up with a decent score so I could get back into the, the arena with her and win, right? And I'm laying there in frustration and going through these. I'm realizing every part about me laying here. Look at verse 7, or sorry, verse 6. And as I'm, I'm laying there in frustration and thinking through these, and I'm realizing every part about me laying there is unrighteous. Every single part. I was so mad. <laughs> I was being unrighteous and not loving, and it wasn't helping because it's not the way. It's not, it wasn't the way. I didn't have love. And in those moments, I can tell you this, and I'm sure maybe, if you could be honest, you've been there. In those moments, I was miserable. And as hard as I tried, right, seriously, meditating on the text, I couldn't make it about anyone else but me. I had a responsibility to love, and I wasn't loving, right? And you know what? Verse 8, look, because I didn't love for those moments, I was miserable, I was angrier, and until I started thinking about the text, I was just getting angrier and angrier with my wife, just laying there silently in my mind, this was all happening. And it was only when that I started to surrender and consider my unrighteousness and be grieved about it, did the anger begin to move away. And I, I, you see, I can't, you can't, we can't have joy without love. And I was not joyful. I was miserable in that moment. And as long as I held on to the things that I was holding on to, it wasn't love. The behaviors weren't love, and I wasn't going to have joy. And I didn't. In verse 7, we see, we, we, we crumble. What happens to us? We crumble under situations like this when love is not present. But with love, we can bear up, Right? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love always perseveres. Which rolls right into the next point, our last point. Love lasts. Love lasts. So this is 8 through 13. Love never ends. Love never ends. Love never fails. I like the NASB, the New American Standard here. Love Never fails. The gifts are temporary and imperfect. God has ordained them, yes. He's provided them, yes. 
He's assigned them by the power of his Holy Spirit. We are able to use them, but we are still limited in the use of them, and they will eventually come to an end. That's where this text is going. It says, but as for prophecy, it will come to an end. As for tongues, it will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. The charismata, right, these gifts of grace have an expiration date, but it says here, love is permanent. Love has an infinite trait, an infinite quality. It's an attribute of God. So, of course, it does. He is loving, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ compels us. The love of God sustains us. We give it, we receive it here, and we will continue to give, receive, experience it in heaven. Love is a gift that has been given in terms of like a free gift that we all have, we've been given, and it's to keep being given to one another. And it will be given on into eternity. But the gifts of the Spirit, right, they will cease. And we see that. As we just read, prophecy and knowledge, they will be done away with. The gifts will pass away. Verse 10 tells us when this happens, if you look there, verse 10 says, when the perfect comes. The imperfect comes to an end. Knowledge in itself isn't disappearing. Okay, that's not what this is saying. But the gift of knowledge won't be needed because everybody will know. And similarly, the, it's, it's not the substance of what has been prophesied that will, about that will come to an end, but what will pass away is the gift of prophecy. So we are told that all these pass away, and by all the, like all the gifts pass away when the perfect comes. And he continues to describe this relationship between our current state and of imperfection to the coming state that is not yet here with us to this coming state of perfection saying right now that we know in part we prophesy in part that is there are many ways even now in the church age as much as God has revealed to us there are many things especially when it comes to God and the details of our lives that we only know in part as it says we prophesy in part we feel this I think this partial, imperfect experience comes to an end when the perfect comes. So what is this perfection that it's referring to here in the text? There is some debate that goes around this. What is this perfection? Well, I think as we just lean into that a little bit, that we think, okay, yeah, God desires to present his church as a radiant offering, and he's done that in one sense. He is also continuing this work in another sense. All right, that is our sanctification. I think this is referring here, this perfect coming is referring to the completion of this work, the second coming of Christ. Again, there is debate over perfection. Some believe that it is the close of the canon that Paul has in mind. And that is meaning that when the, the scriptures are done being written, that that's when perfection comes. But here's the deal with that understanding is that the readers would not understand that reference. And more significantly, I think when we look at verse 12, and you, do, you can go ahead and look at that now, Paul is calling their attention to a time of perfection that is connected to them knowing fully like they're fully known. Right now, he says, it's like looking into a mirror, which is pretty good, but the implication into what he's getting at there is that this, this mirror is a poor reflection compared to what will be at the second coming of Christ. 
where we will see face to face with perfection, with the word. The barriers we face now will not be with us. And so it is in this time of partialness, this time where we have misunderstandings and, and, and inabilities that we face daily, those will no longer be present. That, that perfection is not a time when uh, the canon closes and we have the scriptures as we have right now, but it's a time when our knowledge of heavenly, heavenly things is somehow a reflection of God's knowledge. As it says there in verse 12, a time when I will fully know fully as I am fully known. The second half of verse 12 there. See, right now we know in part. We do not always have a clear understanding of what God wants to do. We are limited, but there's a time when we will no longer be limited in this way. And that time that we won't be limited is at the second coming. In fact, the reference to the second coming is so clear that Calvin was able to say it is stupid of people to make the whole of this discussion apply to the intervening time. And Carson says, however much we respect the New Testament canon, Paul can only be accused of the wildest exaggeration in verse 12, in verse 12, if that's what he's talking about. And if we look back at verse 11, the leap there from infancy to manhood is certainly not saying that before the close of the canon, the church was in infancy. You see that in verse 11? If I read it, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And, and so, well, if, if, if this would apply, uh, this time of perfection would simply apply to when Scripture was done being written and we got our Bibles, right? Then the reference here would be that, that during the time of, of being, of of this being written, that the church was in infancy, and once it was written, they were in adulthood. And say, so, no, that's, that's not what this is saying. All right? Right? This is a reference to what will become of the church when Christ returns. Right now, we're in development, is what it's saying. We're in that, that developmental phase. And we're sanctifying, he's sanctifying, he's preparing his bride. You see, in this life, we don't know everything. And Paul's emphasizing this so don't get puffed up you're still in process church like a child growing into a man right now we're like children only see a reflection we we know only in part about stuff related to the gifts right even as we try to wrestle with some of that we see our limitations don't we even as we wrestle with the text we see some of what we feel some of our limitation but eventually this is saying we will know fully as God knows we will have some comparable knowledge with God that we don't have now. Y'all, that doesn't mean, and we are not saying that, that this text is not saying that we will also then be omniscient. No. It's just saying, well, no, like we're fully known. There's, there's a level of knowledge that we'll have that we don't currently have. He wraps it up, verse 13, and still driving home this point that love lasts. But he wants to go a step further and say that while, while there are these other things that last into eternity... With love, love is still the most excellent way. And so he lists them. Verse 13, now these three remain, faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is, say it, love. Faith, hope, and love all continue. It has been argued, though, 
That faith becomes reality in eternity, so faith is no longer needed. And therefore does not continue. And hope, right? We would describe hope as being realized in eternity. And there's truth to that. And, and so people say, well, then, then hope is no longer needed. But it seems that even as we will study 1 Corinthians 15 here in the future, that hope carries forward into the next life as we enjoy the fullness of our hope, which is Christ himself. And as we become more and more, right there, so when we're in heaven with the Lord, right, as we become more and more acquainted with God throughout eternity, our hope continues as we enjoy the infinite, day after day after, moment after moment. I'm not sure how time will work. We can speak of it in day after day. I don't know. All right? But moment by moment, when we are with our Lord, we will continue to enjoy the infinite depths and blessings of God. The hope will just continue to be realized and realized and realized and realized. Being in the presence of God from one moment to the next in eternity, we will live in this constant excitement and anticipation for more of God. Wow. So hope is awesome. Hope's a really big deal, and we'll live with it, and it's going to be great. It's just going to keep getting filled with hope, and that hope's just going to keep getting met in, in God, in the presence of God. Isn't that awesome? That's exciting. So hope's with us, man. It stays with us. And then we experience this the constant uh, anticipation and then fulfillment of it constantly as we, we dive into the depths of God throughout eternity. It's amazing. And we also look at faith. While an element of faith that will not be needed, that's true. For even as this text says, we will see face to face. So now we have sight. And so in that sense, as some have said, our faith will be displaced by sight, okay, in, in a sense. But there will be, again, moment by moment expression of our faith as we continue to live in the very presence of God in the new heaven and the new earth. So my faith continues as I daily look to Christ, even in his presence, as I worship and adore, I express my faith. Right there in the presence of God. So Carson puts it this way. Will there be any time, listen to his words, I love it. Will there be any time in the next 50 billion years during which the very basis of my presence in the celestial courts will be something other than faith in the grace of God? The answer is no. And so it seems clear that while gifts continue until the second Coming, faith, hope, love continue after the second coming, making all of them great. But even still, Paul wants to tell the church, and God wants to tell his church today, love is the greatest. Faith, hope, and love set in contrast, right? It's when the, the charismata, the gifts of grace stop, but there are these three things that don't stop. These three things remain. They are permanent. But even still, Paul wants to make clear that out of these three permanent virtues, the greatest is love. It is the greatest, right? Because it's the most excellent way. It ties everything together, including the eternal virtues that we just listed. As Paul emphasized throughout this text, without love, everything is empty. Everything is meaningless. In fact, 
as we even just close it down here, that we just sit with that a little bit, that our gifts are empty and meaningless without expressing love. We just return to that thought and be challenged by it this morning that we can't express important point, we can't express this love that we're being called to without Christ. All right? We must have Christ. And so I want to leave even with that, the, the, the meditation on this passage and to really apply it. We have to start there. Do I have Christ? Have I put my faith in Christ? Then I can begin to express the love of Christ if I've put my faith in Christ. Jonathan Edward raised this question, what makes the church like heaven? His answer, it is love. Isn't that beautiful? How do they know? How do they know that we are his disciples? How do they know? How do you know that I am? How do I know that you are? Jesus says in John 13, 35, here's the marker. Here's how they know. By this, everyone, he says, will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then we're given right here how to do it. This is the way, isn't it? This is the way, the most excellent way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's by your grace and the power of your spirit that we are able to exercise this most excellent way. It's because you first loved us that we can love one another. Lord, we thank you for these truths and we ask for help in loving each other well. We thank you for your grace and your love that compels us to love that draws us into yourself and then sends us even out into the lives of one another. Help each person here to reach the conclusion, Heavenly Father, that, that your son died for all. That we would all, there would be not be one person that leaves here this morning that, that has not and would not put their faith in Christ's work on the cross. And once we do this, God, it is when we reach this conclusion of Jesus' work on the cross for me, that he forgives me, that he forgives us, that he died for us, that he loves us, that I can have forgiveness of sin. When we reach this conclusion, then what happens, Lord, is that you move in us that we do not want to live for ourselves any longer. Help us to live out of that place and out of this, this confession of your gospel that takes us into love for others. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.